Today's sponsor is NetSuite. Since the beginning, NetSuite's focus has always been around enabling businesses to reach their goals by supporting the entire operation. NetSuite manages all of the key business processes across finance, accounting, commerce, inventory, and more in a single system available at your fingertips in real time. Now on to today's episode. Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy Managing Editor, Hilary Milnes, and on today's episode is Alexa Buckley, the co-founder of dark-to-consumer footwear brand Margo. Launched in 2015, Margo set out to fix fit for footwear, offering more options for shoe widths and made-to-order sizes. In our conversation, Buckley discussed all the things the brand set out to avoid and ended up doing anyway, like in-store retail and wholesale relationships, as well as the difficulty raising VC funds as a female-founded brand in fashion. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining us, Alexa. Thank you for having me. Of course. So Margo specializes in made-to-order shoes. Um, just give us a little bit of an idea how when you founded the brand, you realized you could sell standard size shoes as well as make them on the fly. How did you pull that off from a logistics perspective? Yeah. So um, when Sarah and I launched the brand, we really had this idea of kind of rethinking the way that shoes are sized and sold. Um, we had both kind of spent a little bit or just enough time living in a city and kind of working in a corporate world to experience the shoe shuffle that we've now witnessed so many women do where they have a pair of shoes that they put on in the morning to take them where they're going and then another pair of shoes that they put on and change into when they arrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and we felt like this was inconvenient and outdated and um, and kind of funny. And, and noticed that this was a decision between comfort and style that women were having to make constantly um, every day and that there really could be a better way and that there should be a better way and that there could be a pair of shoes that a woman puts on in the morning that she feels beautiful in and dressed in, uh, but that she also feels comfortable in and that she can actually like start and end her day in. And this was, you know, the initial inspiration behind Margot um, and, and the brand that it is today and kind of what informed um, our you know, product roadmap and um, where we started. So when we had this idea for this Wear Everywhere shoe, we dug into, you know, how we were going to create it. And it was in this process that we came to understand um the kind of issue with fit in footwear um, and the, the unmet need in the market. Something like 88% of women actually wear the wrong size shoe. Um, and, you know, as the pendulum has swung over the past decade to retail and now kind of away from it in traditional wholesale, um, all optionality when it comes to fit was really squeezed. So, you know, most department stores offer a size 6 through 10 um, when over 25% of women in the U.S. actually wear a size larger than a 10. Mm-hmm. So we dove in headfirst as two college graduates with no business getting into the footwear world um, and started building our supply chain and knew that the way to kind of enter this noisy market was to attack fit and focus on fit and do something that no one had done before. Um, So we graduated in 2014. Uh, We moved to New York and we kind of started by assembling this team of experts that could 
kind of help us um, build the business and kind of across the board. So everything from web design and packaging to product. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is where we built out the supply chain. So we went to Spain um, after hearing no from about 50 factories (laughs) and met the factory that we still work with today um, where we produce all of our standard size shoes and our made to measure shoes as well. Mm-hmm. And so h- how did you choose who to partner with from a person perspective? How did you build the team that, that you would be surrounded by? You know, I think, you know, as, as difficult as it was to start a business at the age of 23, in so many ways there were advantages as well. Mm-hmm. Um, one of which was that we had no kind of preconceived notions of the way things should be or were supposed to go because we had no real life experience in any of it. So we had the vision and we understood exactly what we wanted to build and then we, um, knew that we had to go kind of find those people in whatever specific bucket that it was that could help us realize that vision. Um, so we went after the best and we pitched them on this dream um, of building a new kind of footwear brand. And we heard no as many times, <laughs> it's more than you can imagine. Um, but we're so lucky and so fortunate to find those individuals who did believe in what we were building and who were excited enough to kind of take a chance on it and on us to, to join. So that was the very first thing we did when we started. And we really assembled this team across the board and in every category. And um, it allowed us to kind of be bigger and have more leverage than we ever could have been the two of us in our windowless office in Soho, not very far from here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, it was during this process that we kind of had our probably most serendipitous break um, in finding our now VPs of product. They're our product engineers. And they've done everything from build brands to... Um, launch their own brands, work in factories, build factories. And they led us to the factory that we work with today. Um, It's a family-owned factory in Spain. Mm -hmm. They make for some of the most unbelievable brands in the world. And we pitched the factory owner on our dream. And he was crazy enough to say yes and take a chance. He's young and he's entrepreneurial himself. So today we have a dedicated line within the factory that makes all of our made-to-measure shoes. and then they also a separate line that makes all of our standard size shoes as well. Mm-hmm. And so when a made to measure order comes in, what, what happens? What's that process like uh, for the customer and the, the factory you're partnering with as well? Yeah. So um, when a customer is interested in purchasing a pair of made to measure shoes, they can go online and order a fitting kit. So they receive a branded box with everything they need to measure their feet from measuring stick to an instruction guide. There's suede swatches so they can help pick their color. Um, and they It requires them to take four measurements of each foot because often they're different. And then from there, they can go online, create an account, save their measurements, and place their order. And then the beauty of it is that they're saved forever. So coming back and reordering is quite simple. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the back end, we have fit specialists um, and a special algorithm that um, processes the information and places the order with our factory in Spain, where each shoe is made by hand to order and then shipped to the customer. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was, you know, the focus of our launch um, and kind of six months of of data from our customers um, and learning more about feet than I think we ever thought we would know, we realized that there was also middle ground um, and that there was kind of a resounding appetite for fit. And that was the sort of proof of concept of the first six months of of launch for us, Um, but that we could probably accommodate 80% of our customers off the shelf by offering narrow, medium, and wide widths and an extended size range. So that uh, we rolled out kind of within the first year and was a huge unlock for the business and sort of an opening of the floodgates because it is a product offering that our customers cannot find anywhere else. Um, But it also means 
a much easier path to purchase where our customers can, you know, find their perfect fit and have shoes that ship with it to them within two days. So, so that's the turnaround window is, is two days they for ship. the, for the standard size shoes. Uh huh. And what about the made to order? They made to measure about eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you make sure that for customer on either side of the experience, like if you're ordering a standard size, how do you make sure they feel like they're still getting that really customized, uh, ex- fit experience that, that someone is, if they're doing made to measure? Um, you know, it's something that we think about often. We're actually about to launch a very exciting, um, technology application on our website that will help to mimic the Cinderella moment, we call it, that we find customers um, kind of get to enjoy having in person. And it's um, something we think a lot about because our stores have become a really important part of our business. And this offline experience has become kind of an integral piece of the puzzle that I don't think we anticipated when we launched. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there really is something to be said about coming in and getting to try on the narrow, the medium, and the wide widths and having that aha when you learned, oh my goodness, I'm an eight and a half wide and I've always been wearing you know, a nine and a half. Um, it's kind of after the first year of business, we went around the entire country, uh, doing pop-ups and hosting events. And it was a huge turning point for us, um, because we realized that there was an enormous sort of pent up demand for this offline touch point from our customers and that the future of the business, um, and the kind of key to scale would be to be doing both online and offline and doing both really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just opened our very first store uh, here in New York, our flagship, which we're really excited about. Having kind of toured the country, we brought it back home. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's something we think about a lot. So, so you think that the the offline experience and that really high touch experience is what is what adds to the to the overall customer journey, even if you're not ordering a special made shoe. Certainly, I, I think. Uh, you know, we're seeing that you know, over 80% of our, cus- our orders placed in store are from new customers. Um, so there's, you know, an experiential aspect to that first purchase when you can try on all of the different widths and the sizes and kind of find your fit. But from there, you can reorder online. And so in so many ways, it's symbiotic. And in so many ways, both are as important as the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've kind of come to let our customer dictate the journey. And we've really understood that offline is important to her and that we have to kind of meet her where it's most convenient. Um, so we are you know, focused on doing both really well. And now that we've opened New York, have kind of a hit list of cities that we're hoping to tackle next. Right. What else have you learned about building a brand from the ground up? You mentioned that stores might not have been a priority when you first launched, but of course they act as a living, breathing marketing tool for, for a brand that, that is trying to get discovered online um, and, and might not have the, that wholesale exposure at the same time. So what has that taught you about what what a modern brand has to be and, and the best way to appeal to new customers, especially as you're just starting to scale? And I think something we've learned um, is, the, is the power of customer and the power of listening to your customers. And I think as a direct-to-consumer brand, we are um, you know, fortunate enough to be in direct conversation with our customers every day. Stores only help that. Um, but, you know, at launch, we launched with the ballet flat and a single shoe um, with this message that you only need one pair of shoes to take you everywhere you want to go. And that is certainly the core, you know, the core mission of the business. And that is kind of our, our guiding light. But after a year of listening to our customers say over and over again, we would really love a heel from you. Um, we finally had to step back and think, okay, you know, this is what our customers are asking for us. We had 
you know, certainly put a stake in the ground about being a ballet flats brand, but let's step back and think about, you know, what they need and what they want. And so we worked on creating the perfect heel for over a year. We launched it and we were very nervous to do so. Um, and it blew us away and it really changed the way that we think about product and it changed kind of the way that we think about the future of the business. Um, in that I think it's, you have a potential to make it, you know, a, a, a heritage footwear brand um, that covers more categories than we could have ever imagined because we listened to our customer mm-hmm. um, and we let her dictate what she wanted and what she needed from us. Mm-hmm. So now we've kind of slowly but surely tackled each staple of the footwear wardrobe, want, doing one at a time, doing it thoughtfully and, and hopefully very methodically um, so that one day in five years, a customer can look into her closet and say, you know, Margot makes my shoes and have a staple item in each of her classics mm-hmm. from us. Right. And it's also, it's hard to scale a full-fledged brand with one product. Uh, so whenever you are going to expand, how did you sort of rearrange the business to account for, okay, this isn't a ballet shoe brand. This is a shoe brand. Mm-hmm. Did you have to remap at all? You know, we didn't have to remap, but I think what we've always kind of known about creating a brand in today's world is that you have to be known for one thing and you have to be really good at that one thing. Mm-hmm. And our North Star is this idea that our shoes should be as comfortable as they are beautiful and that we are attacking fit in a way that nobody else is doing. Mm -hmm. And if we can make sure that every product kind of accomplishes that, um, then we're still on track and we're still, you know, mapping to what we we set out to do. Um, But it really takes kind of having this North Star and knowing who we are and why we're different and why customers care about us Mm -hmm. um, first before we kind of can create any more product next. Mm -hmm. And so you launched in, in 2015 and, you know, I think it's like, second, maybe even third stage of the direct-to-consumer brand era. You had Mm -hmm. predecessors to look at and learn from their um, mistakes, challenges, uh, outcomes, everything that they've done. And, you know, I think you've spoken to a lot of those things already. You might not sell one product, but you should be known for something that really differentiates you in the market. You might have your online, that's the most robust channel, but it's not going to be the only channel. Uh, What else have you learned from, from DTC brands that have come before? Yeah, I think we always think about ourselves as like the eighth graders when we were kind of about to launch. And we had all these seniors in high school that we were so fortunate to get to look to and understand, you know, what they did well and what they learned and how we could learn from them. Um, And, you know, I think the very first is exactly what you said, this you know, conversation of, of omni-channel. Um, but knowing that e-commerce is really a sales channel, it's on a business model and, and kind of letting the customer dictate the journey in so many ways has been a huge focus of the past year. So understanding what the symbiotic relationship between online and offline looks like you know, has been really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, something that the first generation of direct-to-consumer brands taught us is the power of focus. And, you know, kind of just exactly what we were talking about as attractive as it is to try to be all things to all people. Um, the world is too noisy, um, to really get to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, putting a stake in the ground about something, um, requires patience and focus because as all entrepreneurs know, you just, you have a million ideas every day and you'd like to do all of them all the time. Um, but those brands that have maintained laser sharp focus on exactly who they are and what they're building, um, have certainly, you know, built incredible, incredible things. We're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsor, NetSuite. When it comes to the day-to-day of the business, NetSuite lets you see what's going on in real time. NetSuite is a business management solution of choice for a 10-person health and beauty brand to retailers with thousands of employees. With NetSuite, the mission will always be enabling customers for growth no matter what stage. Now back to the episode. 
well, let's talk about the other like DTC brand markers, wholesale and not having uh, outside retail middleman relationships is one of them. Is that something that you foresee staying true? Um, or do you think that there actually might be value in having outside retail partners? No, it's actually it's so interesting you bring this up because we actually just launched um, or opened a store within a store um, at Bloomingdale's 59th Street flagship. Mm-hmm. And they redid their shoe salon. It's gorgeous. They've brought designer and contemporary together on a single floor. And um, we have our own kind of dedicated space right smack dab in the middle. And you know, three years ago when we launched, we never could have imagined that we would be, as a direct-to-consumer brand, selling through um, you know a very historic retailer uptown in New York. Um, but this opportunity was special for so many reasons. Um, so we were given our own space. Um, we were able to hire our own team. Mm-hmm. And we are kind of operating on a, a dropship model. So mm-hmm. we're not actually selling through Bloomingdale's. Um, but we get to kind of take part in this very special environment that they've created. Mm-hmm. And this has knocked our socks off. Um, this has, you know, not only the success of this little shop blown us away, but it's kind of forced us to step back and really think, you know, what does wholesale look like um, for this next generation of direct-to-consumer brands? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, with an, over 97% of the orders placed at this little shop and shop are coming from new customers. Like mm-hmm. this is a customer we would never have found otherwise. Right. And um, this customer is loyal to Bloomingdale's and she trusts Bloomingdale's. Um, and we, you know, have to figure out a way to kind of rethink wholesale to take advantage of this whole untapped world. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of brands are thinking about this right now um, because, you know, offline isn't going away. Um but there's something to be said about getting to create your own environment within these larger environments. And mm-hmm. we very much believe that is why our you know, shop and shop has been so successful because we have a very special build out that allows the customer to walk in, to, you know, step into the Margo world and really understand it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, it's something that I think, you know, young and old brands are thinking about. Bloomingdale's was um, extremely accommodating and excited to do something like this. And mm-hmm. As I, I think as we think about the future of this third channel for us, it'll be about kind of creating our own environment within these other larger, unbelievable environments that allow us to do both. Mm-hmm. And looking for that flexibility for retailers exactly. who can identify what a brand like yours might need. And so what, what led you to go for the um, shop within a shop model rather than a more traditional wholesale relationship? So, I mean... Like a few reasons. First and foremost, because we really have kind of structured ourselves to be direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. So that is how we're able to uh, you know, offer price points as compelling as they are. Um, but also because our value proposition of fit means that this brand really works as a direct to consumer brand because not many retailers want to take on, you know, an extended size range in narrow and medium and wide widths with the custom offering. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that has been quite evident as we are the only footwear brand um, on the Bloomingdale shoe floor that offers any optionality when it comes to width off the shelf, so narrow or wide widths, um, and these fringe sizes on the larger and smaller ends, um, which has meant that it's been a fantastic opportunity for us. And the Bloomingdale sales associates have been selling our shoes as often as you know our own team has. Um, but it's meant that this is you know a very special uh, arrangement that we'll have to figure out how we can kind of scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think kind of you know, less structurally and more thoughtfully, um, we 
you know, understand the power of context when it comes to our product. Um, there's a lot of education that comes with our, our fitting process in particular. And so we felt strongly about having our own environment um, that we could kind of walk through customers through the collection, but also the fitting experience um, and really educate them. And so it wouldn't quite have worked had it been, you know, a few shoes on a pedestal it really needed to be our world. Right. Um, and it's so how have you navigated funding for the first three years? Uh, and, and how did that your decision and your strategy behind that, was that shaped at all by what you saw other brands in the space facing? Um, obviously it sounds great to raise a ton of money, but that sets expectations. Um, yes, we have, you know, first and foremost, we've raised, we've raised around a round of seed funding. Um, and we, you know, looked for people who, um, first and foremost, obviously shared the vision for what we were hoping to create. And that meant something, um, that had a long-term approach, um, cause we really, you know, very much hope to build a lasting sort of heritage brand of sorts, a modern day heritage brand. Um, and so the kind of common thread uh, between all of our investors is that they are all builders. And that does not necessarily mean they've come from fashion um, or even the startup world, but they've all sort of built something and in so many ways understand what it takes um, from the highs and the lows to kind of the patience and the grit. Um, and have been like the most unbelievable support base we could have asked for. So the first, you know, round, we really focused on angels. Um, we did bring in a strategic and assembled brands. I think Adam was here on this podcast before. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been an unbelievable support system for us kind of with industry expertise in particular. Um, and as we think about the future of funding and something that will be certainly on our minds next year, um, you know, we're going to take that same approach of, of finding people who, believe in what Margot can be, you know, in the next three years, but also in the next 10 years. Um, and that people who understand brand, Mm -hmm. because we believe that kind of decisions made for the sake of the brand, you know, fundamentally inform everything else, because it really does require a long-term thoughtful approach. Um, it's less about the three quick year, you know, the quick three year turnaround, um, on the investment and, and more, the longer tail. Right. Yeah. It's, it takes a while. I think yeah. the investors have come around to that. Um, and what was it like, uh, your co-founder, uh, Sarah is, you know, you guys both graduated from college, right. And you launched the brand right away. What was it like as two young female founders going up in front of these investors with an idea for a shoe brand for working women? Yeah. Hard, <laughs> really hard. I had a feeling you'd say that. <laughs> um, we were talking about that this morning. So we had a great breakfast for female founders at our store. Uh, it's difficult. I think it's the greatest boot camp any entrepreneur could ever go through because you learn really quickly like who you are, what you stand for, and where the heck you're going. Mm-hmm. Um, but as two 24-year-old women creating a brand for women, um, pitching to a largely male audience was no small task. Mm-hmm. You know, most especially because you get the response of, oh, you know, I'll have to ask my wife about this. Uh, yeah. Um, and it immediately sort of discredits not only what you're doing, but the validity of the investment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I happen to think that if it was a female investor who didn't understand men's pants, she might not be able to be an investor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she would have to understand, but mm-hmm. um, it's certainly not the same in the reverse. We found, you know, situations where there is a woman in the room certainly changes the dynamic. But at the same time, there are, you know, a number of fantastic male investors. It just takes um, the patience and the focus to really find those people. Mm-hmm. I think the beauty of doing it in New York is that the ecosystem is very tight-knit, and there's certainly the pay-it-forward methods that we've really benefited from all of, you know, our friends who are just a few years ahead of us mm-hmm. and have opened their worlds to us. Um, but it has been an adventure, mm-hmm. and I think I'm so glad we're doing it together. <laughs> yeah. um, it's really nice to have a best friend in it. 
but it has opened our eyes to the to the the sheer need for more women um, on the other side of the table because the moments in which there have been women on the other side of the table, the conversation was so different Mm -hmm. and so much easier because we were able to talk about the business and the pains that we were solving, not trying to articulate the pain point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so, so as you find those investors that understand the business, the need for it, as well as the, uh, how, how a company like yours would scale, which is slowly, how do you start that that's slow ascent. We've talked about, you know, listening to the customer, making decisions that way. How has that um, helped you figure out which which way to grow next? I think, you know, we've really maintained a laser sharp focus on doing something well and getting it right before we moved on to the next thing. So first and foremost with product. Um, we have spent almost a year on each of the products that we've launched because in footwear, it's all about millimeters. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of relentless commitment um, to that kind of idea of it's all in the matter of millimeters has in some ways informed a lot of other parts of the business. Um, We've taken the same kind of slow and thoughtful approach to stores. Um, And, you know, now that we've finally done New York and, and opened it on the dream block where we've always hoped we would be, we are now ready to tackle the next list of cities. But I think it's um, this idea that, if you can do do things and do them well, it really starts to build on this sort of luxury brand that we hope we can create. And and luxury to us doesn't necessarily mean the price point. It means the experience. And that experience is then all about the details. And those details, I think, can only be accomplished really well um, when, you know, sheer focus and attention has been paid to them. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting. I was I'm just about to point out, I feel like you used the word heritage before luxury. Obviously, you mentioned luxury just now, um, especially in regards to the experience. But as you see the, the roadmap for direct-to-consumer brands um, specializing in a specific area of need like yours going forward, when do one of these brands that, that that feels so different for the past 10 years sort of just become something like a heritage brand that people are, are used to. It's less this, oh, flashy strategy where you have, you know, the, the minimalist website and mm-hmm. the, and the very yeah. luxury in-store experience and you're doing events and that's all crazy and new. When do you think a brand like that becomes a heritage brand? That's a great question. I think um, when it becomes the obvious choice for whatever category they're in. Mm-hmm. And in, for some brands, that's happened overnight. And for some others, it's taken decades. Um, but I think that's what we think about when we think about heritage, that once a customer is going to look into her closet and she you know, needs her perfect wear, every wear heel or her ballet flat, whatever that is, she knows that she has a pair of our shoes in her closet that will be that for her. Um, that when someone needs a new perfect pair of shoes for work or a perfect pair of walkable heels, like, I'm going to Marco. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we recognize that that takes time to build. Um, but I think that's that's the kind of brand we hope to build. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting because I, I think you hear from a few different directions that heritage brands might not even exist anymore. Mm-hmm. The way that retail is set up right now, it, it's not going to um, spawn the, the arrival of new Tommy Hilfiger's and right. Ralph Lauren's. Uh, so, so do you see how do you become a, a go-to brand then in, in such a crowded competitive market? You know, in some ways I think about those brands as lifestyle brands mm. and I think heritage more as something that can survive the test of time and the test of sort of fad and trend, mm. um, and moment. 
and something that can be really lasting. So in some ways, those brands have done that, um, but in other ways, they're the best example of lifestyle. And I think the way to survive today is kind of doing the opposite from lifestyle in some ways and 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 being known for the best at whatever you do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, best in class in X, um, I think is the ticket to rising above the noise because there is so much of it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and providing something to the customer that they can't necessarily find anywhere else. Right. Um, that usually takes the form of solving a problem or a pain point. Mm-hmm. And having a unique product that keeps them coming back to you um, more than anyone else. And what's been the most effective ways to get in front of new consumers and then also get get back in front of the ones who might have purchased before? I think one of the biggest burdens for direct-to-consumer brands, because you don't have those big marketing engines behind your wholesale accounts working for you, is just getting that cutting through the noise. Definitely. Um, you know, offline has certainly been a, a critical acquisition channel for us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely been more than marketing. Um, it has kind of opened our eyes to the range of customers that we do have and can have, um, with these physical locations, especially, um, you know, digital marketing obviously is important. It's mm-hmm. really something that we've only just begun to invest in. And we've seen, you know, a tremendous return, but also, you know, understand the need to kind of diversify across. So, um, you know, what we've kind of found in, in the past, you know, six months to the year is this interesting cadence of, you know, this funnel where we're acquiring new customers offline and they're repeating online. Mm -hmm. And, and that kind of symbiotic relationship between the two is something that we're excited about and want to scale, um, because we see that first person purchase happening in person where someone's finding their fit kind of understanding the brand now getting to see all of the other colors that they're excited to purchase after this and then mm-hmm. they're coming back and purchasing online and and the loyalty of these customers and the repeat behavior of these customers is astounding mm-hmm. so it's less about being an instagram brand today and, <laughs> and more about that offline online really valuable customer for us it's, you know definitely we we love instagram it's our mood board it's definitely a way that our younger customers are finding us mm-hmm. um but for the 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 first purchase we're finding the offline channels to be you know, astoundingly effective. Mm -hmm. And you're just starting to put money behind those channels when you say digital marketing. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that's such, it's only getting more expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Brands are, are looking smartly for, for alternative routes. Uh, so I think I think we're just about out of time. But um, as you were mentioning the the future of where heritage versus lifestyle versus luxury goes, um, and you say you don't want to be a lifestyle brand necessarily. How do you how do you define a lifestyle brand, and how do you see the growth of the brand by category, by new product, in making it heritage rather than lifestyle? It's a great question. There's certainly a dream list of, of products we would love to create <laughs> that perhaps aren't footwear. Um, but I think we understand the power of focus. So for the next five years, it will definitely be footwear. Um, you know, who knows beyond that? Mm-hmm. I think the difference in our minds, um, though there are certainly gray areas between sort of our version of heritage and lifestyle is really maintaining that focus um, and the excellence and the things that we do do so that they do kind of stand the test of time. Um, we are wary of spreading ourselves too thin and not them being the best at anything Mm -hmm. Um, and wanting to make sure that those things that we do, we do so kind of as well and as perfectly as close to perfection as we can Mm -hmm. um, and never kind of falter from that core mission that we've set out to accomplish. Great. I think that's a great part to leave off on. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Alexa. Thank you for having me. 
and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. If you've been enjoying this podcast and aren't a Glossy Plus subscriber yet, it's time to consider joining to get access to all of Glossy's content, member events, ticket discounts, Slack chats, and more. As a reward for listening, use the code podcast at glossy.co slash plus to get 20% off an annual subscription. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.